Hi everyone and welcome to the show and boy have I got an interesting episode for you today because we're talking all about Formula One and my guest is an old friend, I don't know how long you've known him for but it must be, it feels like 15 or 20 years, I can't be sure exactly but he went from being in a pretty cool job as an engineer for McLaren and one of Lewis Hamilton's right hand men back in those days to a TV presenter on one of the biggest TV shows, I think, in the world. Now, definitely one of the biggest car shows in the world, Wheeler Dealers. So I want you to sit down and listen, because we're going to talk to an expert all about Formula One. What on earth happened in Abu Dhabi the other day? And, um, and what's going to happen going forward? Let's cue the music. Well, Mike, uh, Mark, Mike, well, Mark, thanks so much for coming to join us on the show. Tell me, just before we start, how long ago did we meet? Well, you just said 15 or 20 years there. I think that's about right. I have to say it was it was early 2000s, wasn't it? So we are coming up towards 20 years, which is remarkable. Until <laughs> how time flies. Indeed, indeed. And watching your career go from you know, working in the garages as an engineer for one of the biggest Formula One teams in the world, then on to presenting your own TV show, which was on Discovery, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, one in particular I really enjoyed was you were in, I think you are in Thailand with the guys with those boats, those uh, with the long propellers <laughs> on it and stuff like that. Long tail boat racing, yeah, crazy long stuff. Long tail boat racing, yeah, I really enjoyed <laughs> that. And then now, now as a co-presenter with Mike Brewer on Wheeler Dealers, it's, uh, it's been a phenomenal journey, hasn't it? Well, it's been a fascinating journey. And um, I mean, my journey, you know, kind of where we met was in Formula One. That's where it started. And that was always my dream. Even growing up as a kid, that was that was everything I always wanted to do from a early teenage years. I was kind of one of the lucky kids, I guess, that knew where I wanted to be in life at that early age. Not many kids do, but it was always about Formula One for me. And I started on this journey with no major qualifications as such. I had no real head start in getting into that world. I had no connections. I had no family history of it as such but I lived near Brands Hatch which at the time in the UK was uh, was when I was a kid was sharing the British Grand Prix with the, with the Silverstone so we had this exposure to it and that was what ignited that fire for me and uh, I just set about you know an early an early path finding my way towards Formula One and the way I did it was kind of working my way up the motor racing ladder pretty much in the same way a driver does so you start off in karting and in formula ford the lower categories and you you climb the ladder and you work towards formula one and that that journey through the years of formula one that i'm sure we'll talk about was just just a dream come true and fascinating and it's led on to all of the other things that i've done since let's stay with formula one for a second and before we talk about your career now when when you when I used to know you back in those days, it seemed to me like you guys had a really high pressure job, you used to work really long hours, and all for a tenth of a second. And that, that's what it was a bit like. I mean, you, I mean, don't get me wrong, we used to have a beer occasionally and enjoy that as well, but really, it was, that was a really intense, what appeared to be a really intense job. What was it like to, to be an engineer in a team like that? What kind of pressure did you feel? And um, and, and was was there a real camaraderie, which I'd hope there was? Yeah, so there was. Uh, first of all, the camaraderie is is kind of one of the methods we have in that world to deal with the pressure because there are very few people in the world that, that have ever experienced the same thing. You know, the idea of going through a pit stop 
is one of the most intense high pressure moments. It's over in a flash, a couple of seconds nowadays. Um, but it's such an intense couple of seconds, which is a remarkable thing to say. But the pressure that's building up to those moments and anyone who watched the Grand Prix, the season finale in, in Abu Dhabi this weekend, with aside from all the controversy and everything else, I always spare a moment for those guys in the pit lane who, you know, we're talking about the race director making controversial decisions or potentially mistakes that might have changed the outcome of a championship. Any one of those people in that pit stop, in any one of the pit stops, could have done the same thing. They could have made a mistake. They could have had an error or a, an error of judgment or buckled under some pressure. And that could have equally changed the championship outcome. And, and imagine that being on your shoulders. The, the world is talking about Formula One days after that race has happened because of the controversy and because how the way the championship unfolded. That could have come down to one guy, a guy just like me, nobody particularly special, but an engineer, mechanic, a truck driver even involved in those pit stops who could have made a mistake. So that pressure is unbelievable. But then you have to look at the kind of people that are involved in this world. And, and I can only speak from my own personal experience. I love that pressure. It was, I'm the sort of person that seems to thrive under that pressure and I wouldn't have had it any other way. The camaraderie, the group of people that you're surrounded by are the only other people in the world who have that same experience of you. And there's not many of them, there's 20 or so. And so that brings you together with an incredible bond that, that gets you through some of the toughest moments. And obviously when you, you have amazing success, you also celebrate that. And, and Spencer, you know, you were there on a couple of those occasions when we managed to celebrate together. So we, we worked hard, we also played hard, and it was a kind of release from that pressure when you get away from the racetrack and you, uh, you manage to have some time away in the evenings. It was great, it was great fun, um, you know, and I shared it with great people. So, and I know people that we knew back all those years ago that are still in that business today, still doing that kind of job. You stepped away from that though, what was the reason? Well, I did a 10-year stint in Formula One with McLaren. Uh, 10 years actually at the time was, was quite a long period. Um, it's a, as you, you just touched on there, it's a really intense career. It's high pressure, you're never at home, you're always on the road traveling, you're living out of a suitcase. And when you're young and, and sort of free and single and everything else, that's an incredible life. It had been the life that I dreamt of, as I said, for many, many years. And I wouldn't have changed a thing, but after a 10 year period, you know, I was starting to think, okay, well, what's next? What, am I gonna do this forever? And you know, as you say, some people can, some people do. It wasn't something I wanted to do forever because I didn't want to be away from, from home. I, I had young kids by that point, so it's very difficult to be on the road for that amount of time. Um, but the real trigger or the real moment that sort of made my mind up was we won the championship with Lewis Hamilton in 2008. And that's, a, that's the biggest thing you can achieve in Formula One. That's in the same way it is for the drivers, for the engineers and the mechanics and all members of those teams, the world championship is the holy grail. And so when we managed to achieve that, we missed out narrowly in 2007, if, if anyone, Formula One fans remember, uh, controversial year for us, really intense high pressure year, that one. The following season, uh, in only Lewis's second year, we managed to take him to that first world title of his. And, you know, when you have that moment, I remember at the end of that race, it was in Brazil in 2008, where it all culminated. I remember getting to the end thinking, you know, I could come back and we could go again and try and do this. And, you know, maybe we'll be lucky and we'll win another championship. Maybe we won't. But the point is, I've just achieved not only my dream of getting to Formula One, having a 10 year career in it, but I've also achieved the dream that I didn't even realise was a dream until you get there of winning the Holy Grail. And so there were two things. First of all, I thought, 
this if there's ever a time to sort of bow out and try and do something different this is probably it we've just we've just sort of hit the top and secondly i know from my experience of trying to break into the world of formula one there's a there's an endless queue of people desperate to do that job that i was doing and there was a little part of me that honestly thought you know there's a there's a there's a moment here where i should probably give other people a chance i've just ticked off the biggest box i could tick in my career who knows what's ahead didn't really have a plan if i'm really honest about what to do next but i knew that from that moment probably my uh, my days of traveling in the same way that i was back then uh, were probably over so i just took the brave decision and it was a brave decision to step away from the team or certainly step away from traveling i went back into the factory for for a year after after racing in 2008 and then worked out a plan of what to do next afterwards. And your career then moved into a, a direction that I don't know anybody else that was in your position did, you know, to get into TV like you did. And, and you know, I, I remember meeting you. We met at a pub in London somewhere to have a chat. Do you remember that? And uh, you, you were telling me about your show and you were telling me about how much it cost to make. And I'm like... This, this guy and I, you know, I, I know him from Formula One to see him evolve from Formula One and then to go on to have his host his own TV show, I think it was on Discovery, was just remarkable. How did that happen? Well, uh, so a couple of different things happened to, to enable that. I mean, the first thing when I left the team, as I said, I didn't really have a plan. But what I did do, because I was obviously a huge Formula One fan, I was still passionate, I'm still to this day probably one of the most passionate Formula One fans out there. So when I left, I started writing some, some of my experiences. I, initially, just on my own blog page that I set up, then a couple of magazines asked me to write some articles for them, and it was about the insider view of, of you know, my unique take on, on this whole experience of being in the Formula One pit lane. And after doing that for a while, and a few magazines picking up on this thing, I got a message uh, from the producers of the BBC Radio 5 Live Formula One broadcast. And he sent me a message just out of the blue. It was on Twitter, actually, a direct message saying, I've seen some of your writing, think it's really good, really insightful, a different take on it all. We think it might translate onto the radio. Would you fancy coming along to the British Grand Prix to be a pit lane reporter for the day? And that was the message. Never met this guy, didn't know anything. I had no real designs or, or, or you know, desire to get into that side of the media. But I thought, well, why not? I'm the sort of guy who tends to say yes to most things and then worry about it later. Uh, so I, I went along to the British Grand Prix not knowing what to expect and and basically what I did, I went in there and I think it was a little bit like, you know, when you've got a work experience kid come into your office and you sort of give them a little job to do, sort of get them out of your feet. Well, they gave me a microphone and a little recording pack and said, right, go off into the paddock and just, you know, see what you can get. See who you can interview, see what you can get from anybody. Just if you beat, meet anybody, just ask them a few questions. And it really was one of those like, you know, get yourself out of the office. We've got really serious stuff to do here. So I took this mic pack and I like a, a rabbit in the headlights. I wandered off into the paddock. A paddock, by the way, where I spent my whole career and yet I, I was on the other side. I was in the pit lane. So the actual behind the garages in the paddock, which is where a lot of the marketing, the management, all of these kind of things was, although I was obviously very familiar with it, it wasn't my domain. So I wandered around and as I came out the doors into the paddock, the first person that I nearly bumped into, would you believe, was Bernie Eccleston. He stepped out of a doorway in front of me and, you know, you know Bernie Eccleston, he's four foot tall. He is the most intimidating man of that height and stature uh, that you could ever meet. He was like the godfather of Formula One back then. So I was terrified. I was literally shaking like a leaf. And I had a moment to say to myself, well, 
I can either pretend I didn't see him and just keep walking, which is probably what I really wanted to do because I was so scared, or this could be a moment, you know, this is a, an opportunity that may not come around again. And so I switched my microphone on, I shoved it under his nose and I said, Bernie, have you got a moment for a question? And he said, yes. And I asked him a couple of questions about the British Grand Prix. And after two minutes, a, a, one of his people sort of grabbed him and said, Bernie, we've got to go. And he said, oh, I'm really sorry, I've got to rush. And off he ran down the paddock. And you know, I thought in that moment, I thought, wow, do you know what? That was incredible. I've just spoken to this guy who has essentially built Formula One. It wasn't a very good interview, but you know, I've just, I've just done it. I've just broken my duck, if you like. Uh, anyway, I carried on thinking, well, we didn't finish, but it's fine. I carried on down the paddock. Five minutes later, Bernie Eccleston comes running along the paddock, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey son, I'm really sorry about that. That was so rude of me to walk away halfway through the interview. Would you like to come and finish it off? And I was like, oh my God, that's incredible. Like he doesn't know me, he doesn't know who I am. That's such a, a lovely thing to do. He took me into his motorhome, we sat down at a table and I got a full sort of five minute long interview, which was probably still a terrible interview, but it was an amazing experience for me. And I went away from that day at the British Grand Prix and, on, and I remember clearly on the way home, phoning my wife saying, I've just discovered what my, my next career is. You know, I love it. I absolutely love this whole idea of just talking passionately about this sport that I love. And from that day forward, I just made it my mission to try and create further opportunities. And I went on to do stuff for Sky and ESPN around Formula One broadcasting. And eventually off the back of all of that, this, this kind of weird link to uh, this motorsport based car TV show, which was Driving Wild, which is the one you referred to earlier, kind of came out the blue from a producer that I met that we'd, we'd been talking over a dinner about what I did and and the connection was made and it was a, that's life, isn't it, Spencer? You know, these things come out of nowhere where you least expect them and it's all the building blocks that you put in beforehand that lead on to them. So I'm well aware that my efforts to get into Formula One are what eventually led to these things. Even though there's a massive gulf between the two, the moment back when I was a kid that I decided to make it an absolute goal in life to get into Formula One, I'm well aware that that is what's led on to where I am today and, and doing even something as random as Wheeler Dealers. And that's exactly the message that I try and pass on to my kids and anyone else who asks me about this kind of thing. It's the, the things, the decisions you make today can have a massive impact somewhere further down the line. So don't take them for granted. Wow, what a lovely story, a lovely story. Keep, keep your eye on your prize, keep working, networking and building relationships with people and you don't, don't know what doors will be open. That's fantastic. And how much fun have you had being part of Wheeler Dealers? Oh, it's just amazing. And it's, uh, it's been so much fun because, I mean, ultimately the very reason I got into Formula One in the first place was because I love cars. So although Wheeler Dealers is not a motorsport-based show, it is all around cars. And Back in the very beginning, and it seems like such a long time ago now, it was all about getting my hands stuck in and dirty onto these cars, about the engineering side, the mechanical side, and taking them apart, putting them back together, trying to improve them, make them faster. And that's ultimately what I'm now doing, just all being in a slightly different sense. So, as I said, it's all connected in some way, even if the links may at first seem tenuous. But because I'm doing something I love, and, and you know this, Spencer, when you, when you do something you love, you enjoy it and it doesn't feel like work. And I've been very lucky that all the way through my career, I've managed to find things that have, have ticked that box. So yeah, it's a, it's a great experience. I'm hugely appreciative of what I do. I never take any day for granted because you know it's, a, it's an absolute blessing to be able to do this stuff and call it a job. So I'm very lucky.
Mm. And just a, just a quick insight on that. What's Mike like to work with? Is he is he the person you see on screen, or is he different? Uh, he's just the most. There's two things about Mike. He's he's hilarious, so we laugh all day long. We just and the whole crew is brilliant. We have such fun. Uh, telling jokes and laughing at each other all day long. But he's also one of the nicest people I've ever met. He gets a huge amount of, of unfair abuse online. I mean, Twitter and, and co can be a, a brutal place at times. And people are so passionate about this show. I mean, you touched on it earlier. We said it's one of the biggest car shows in the world. I mean, it really is. And I'm only now kind of appreciating how big this is, not just you know, you're very much in a bubble wherever you live. You think about your country and what's on your TV networks. But actually around the world, this show goes to hundreds of millions of people and it means a lot to them. And I'm only kind of really discovering that. And because a bit like Formula One, people are so passionate about it with the advent of things like Twitter. Everybody's got an opinion and they're very quick and happy to share it. And, uh, and unfortunately, sometimes they don't like what you do. So I've been very lucky with the, uh, the sort of response that I've had to my appearance on the show. But Mike has been on it for 18 years. And so no surprise that a section of the audience um, you know, have, have some negative things to say. And he, he takes it all very well, uh, but, but ultimately he's a lovely, lovely man. Oh, that's nice to know. That's nice to know. Okay, let's talk about Formula One because what has happened over the course of the last weekend uh, that in, in a season that's just been spectacular in so many ways really, really made me question a few things, you know. Seeing, seeing what happened, and for the people that don't know much about Formula One, you all know the name Lewis Hamilton. That's the first thing. Max Verstappen has, has just been crowned the new world champion. And this year, again, for you lot that don't know Formula One, this year has probably been the best year in, in the history of the sport in terms of controversies, in terms of competition, fight, battles, you name it, it's all gone on this year. So if you don't know Formula One and you haven't yet, go watch Drive, is it Drive to Survive on Netflix? Yeah, yeah. If they, Everyone I know that didn't know Formula One that watched that series came away going, oh, it sounds quite interesting. So that will give you a good insight. But we had a massive, well, so I'm going to say scandal here. I don't know the word scandal. Massive controversy because what happened in that race is the fight for the world championship was down to the last race. Lewis and Max, toe-to-toe, -to -toe, whoever won that race was going to win the world championship. Now, Lewis gets off the line, and he, from second place, he takes the lead, and he basically dominates the whole race until right towards the very end. And then what happened, Mark? <laughs> well, uh, so yeah, right towards the end, Lewis was, was dominating, as you say, five laps from the end. There was a Williams of Nicholas Latifi that had an accident at turn 14 against the barriers. There was debris across the racetrack and the race director, uh, Michael Massey, throws the safety car out. Standard procedure, that's to allow the marshals to get onto the track safely. The cars then have to slow down. They all bunch up into a train, which obviously negates the lead that Lewis Hamilton has built up. But unfortunately, in this particular scenario, there are back markers. So cars that have been lapped in between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen, who was second. Now, there are various regulations. The, the, the Formula One rulebook is, I mean, it's enormous. It's hundreds of pages long. It's massive. It's very complex. But there are a couple of regulations that stood out here around how the safety car could be deployed, how it can be retracted, and how the unlapped cars, uh, sorry, the lapped cars are allowed to unlap themselves. And Essentially, I'll break it down into quite simple terms because it can be incredibly complicated. Uh, the rule states typically that uh, when the debris has been cleared up and so the circuit is safe again, the race director can allow the lapped cars, so those five cars that were sat, currently sat between Lewis and Max, to unlap themselves. So they overtake the safety car, they chase around and join the back of the field. 
The regulation then states, if that happens, when all the cars have done that, unlapped themselves, the safety car will then come in at the end of the following lap. There's a regulation that states that. Now, we were in a situation here where the clock was ticking down, the laps were running out, and we got to a point where the circuit became safe with only one more lap left on the board. Now, if they'd followed that procedure and allowed all those cars to unlap themselves, then the safety car come in at the end of the following lap, we'd have run out of laps and the race would have ended under the safety car. Now, there's nothing to say that can't happen, but there is an agreement amongst teams and generally amongst people that we would much rather see a race end under green flag racing conditions than under the, the safety car, which doesn't give much of a show. However, what happened in this scenario, because Michael Massey, the race director, wanted to get green flag, flag racing, he kind of negated those two regulations, allowed only the five cars between Max and Lewis to unlap themselves, leaving three other cars that were lapped to not follow that procedure. And as soon as they'd overtaken the safety car, he called the safety car in. So he didn't wait for the end of the following lap as the regulations says. That then meant Max is right behind Lewis. We get one final lap of green flag racing. And because Max has taken a set of brand new soft tyres, much faster, stickier tyres under the safety car period that Lewis wasn't able to do, Max has a faster car in that moment. And on the final lap, we have this dramatic scenario where Max overtakes Lewis. They fight for a couple of corners and it's Max Verstappen that comes out on top against, completely against the run of play for that race. Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes, of course, feel massively aggrieved about that because they've done everything right to win that Grand Prix. And because the race director didn't follow the regulations, a protest went in after the race, which was, first of all, um, rejected by the stewards. And now Mercedes, as we currently record this, have lodged their intention to appeal that uh, steward's decision. So Max Verstappen is world champion. However, there's this massive black cloud of a potential appeal that's hanging over the whole sport. And by the time this podcast goes live, uh, we will probably, although not definitely, have a, an answer to whether that appeal has first of all been lodged and secondly, been upheld or not. I think... A lot of people think of it as a sport, but when, you know, I've had the opportunity to be down there with you guys and, and, and watch what you do. And to me, it's not a sport. It's a, it's a multi-billion dollar business. And you can take, you know, advertising revenues, you can take sponsors, you can take partnerships with various providers within the industry. And the thousands and thousands of people that are employed throughout all of the teams, and when, if it was any other business, you'd be looking at everything business related. So legal documents, terms and conditions, you know, what did the contract say? You know, who's breached the contract and stuff like that. Why can it not be looked at the same way in this? Well, um, I mean, that is exactly the way that the Mercedes lawyers will now be looking at it in terms of this potential appeal. That's the first thing. And I think that's the question that a lot of people are saying. Why aren't the rules just black and white? Now, there are a couple of things. It's a very complex sport, first of all, and it is a sport as well as this business side of things. There's also the entertainment side of what we do. And the idea of trying to get cars racing again at the end of a lap rather than at the end of a race, rather, follow, rather than following the safety car, you know, is as much about the fact that the, the world is watching this championship decider. There's more eyeballs on it probably than any other race for many years. There's an entertainment factor here we want to try and uphold. uphold. We want to give some great spectacle racing to the people that are watching. But if you're one of the teams, I mean, I know from my 
side of sitting on a team, if I'm sitting in that Mercedes garage, I'm going to feel incredibly hard done by because they haven't put a foot wrong all race. They have the faster car, the faster driver on the day, not necessarily over the championship. It was a very fair championship. And to be clear, both drivers are very worthy champions. Both drivers deserved the world championship this, this year. There was nothing between them. But on that day, Lewis and Mercedes did the better job. So should they not have won that race? But on the flip side of that, sometimes things happen in racing. The fact there was a crash on at the end of that race was just racing. That happens. And then the race director has some very difficult decisions to make. In split-second timing, by the way, under immense pressure, I feel like he got it horribly wrong, but I don't feel like there was any inherent bias in the way his decision-making was made. I feel like he was trying to do the right thing. It's just that he got caught in two minds, in my mind. He got caught between two different decisions as to whether to let the race play out under the safety car, whether to follow all the procedures by the letter of the law, or whether to do something different that might give us the racing we all want. And somewhere in the middle of that, I feel like he got it all wrong and, and almost buckled under the pressure. But the consequences, of course, are massive. And that's why the lawyers will now be looking at exactly what the wording of those regulations were and what can be done. The problem is exactly that, what can be done? Because in most circumstances like this, you've got a driver or a team that's at fault and can be penalised. We don't have that because none of the drivers did anything wrong. We've now got a situation where the rule makers and the referee, the guys that are supposed to be upholding their own rules at the FIA, have made a mistake. So what's the potential outcome here? That's a very difficult scenario with no precedent. Yes, very complicated. When, when you think about it, what do you think will happen? My, my gut feeling is that nothing will happen. I feel like Mercedes will, I mean, they may not even lodge this protest. They have 96 hours from their lodging of the intention to, 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 um, to appeal to actually lodge an appeal, which they may or may not yet do. Um, if they do go down the route of appealing, I feel like it will be not just to get their hands on this trophy, which is obviously a big prize in Formula One, but I think it's as much about shaping the way the sport's governed in the future because we can't allow this kind of thing to happen again. So do we need to really look at the framework of how these decisions are made? Do we need to simplify the rules? Something needs to happen and perhaps, uh, you know, this, this protest or this appeal, if it happens, will be a, as much a part of that as it is about actually getting hold of the trophy. So my feeling is, even if Mercedes go to the lengths of appealing, I don't see what the FIA or a court of appeal could do to overturn the results. There isn't really a clear outcome as to how that could happen. So I can't see the result changing. Um, there is another course of action that if their appeal was rejected, they can go to the uh, Court of Arbitration for Sport, which sits above all sport. That's a huge deal. Uh, it's a very messy affair. You know, this is not a good look for Formula One. Um, I think my overriding feeling is that this will have to slightly fade away into the background. Max Verstappen will be world champion, a worthy one at that. And Lewis Hamilton and Mercedes will, unfortunately for them and the team, have to take it on the chin and hopefully come back and fight a stronger campaign next year with a new set of rules, a clearer direction, some more support for the race director in scenarios like this under such massive pressure. Uh, and hopefully we can prevent it from ever happening. When we, when we look back and we compare um, the previous race director, Charlie Whiting, compared to Michael Massey, who's now the race director, um, did you, do you ever remember when Charlie was there? Because he passed away in 2019. So you've had plenty of years with him being there with you. Do you ever remember a time where he got the call so bad himself? Well, 
I think there, was, there were a couple of big differences with, in the Charlie Whiting era. First of all, the sport was quite different back then. It was the Bernie Eccleston era. So lots of these controversies back then were sorted out with a bit of a handshake and a, and a deal sweetener behind the scenes that, that we, the public, never ever got to hear about. Um, and that happened a lot. There was a lot of underhand, if you want to call it that, but behind the scenes dealings to sort out many of the controversies. So we didn't have the same level of media access. We certainly didn't have social media in that, 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 uh, that period. We didn't have the access to team radio between the FIA and the teams like we've got at the moment. So we're hearing and seeing a, a very different side to this governance than we did under the Charlie Whiting era. Charlie Whiting made mistakes. He was a human like the rest of us. He makes mistakes and some of them were pretty big and controversial and he created or was part of some very controversial decisions and, and periods of time in the sport. I think what's happening today is we've got a much bigger set of opinions in terms of the fans being able to share those opinions immediately, the way the media have portrayed uh, you know, the events of the weekend. I've seen some disgraceful journalism uh, off the back of Sunday's race you know, blaming, outwardly blaming Michael Massey in the most horrific way. And, let uh, you know, I'm first to say I think he made a mistake, but we all make mistakes. And, and you know, let's spare a thought for how Michael Massey is feeling today, uh, two days after the event, when the world is, is the weight of the world is on his shoulders. He probably knows he didn't handle things in the perfect way. But look, I mean, let's give the guy some support and find out why it happened, how it happened, how can we can prevent it happening again. And, you know, I said to somebody yesterday, if you're in a Formula One team and you're in a pit stop and you mess up the wheel gun, you don't get a wheel nut on tight and it ends your driver's race, which could potentially end the championship for your driver if you're in that scenario. That guy is in the lowest possible point that he can feel. He knows how bad he's messed up. He knows how serious the outcome is, but he doesn't get sacked. You know, that's not the last thing he ever does in Formula One because that person has to be central to making sure that the process can be changed and improved and doesn't happen again. There's nobody better placed to help make the improvements to prevent this kind of thing happening. And I would say that could be the same for Michael Massey. He could be central to how we recover from this and move forward. So it's a very difficult scenario. Lots of people calling for Michael Massey's head. And I understand all of that. This isn't the first controversial call he's made. But perhaps there's more some, some more systemic problems. Perhaps he hasn't got enough support in race control. Perhaps there isn't enough technology and resource backing him up. He has nowhere near the resource that the teams have when trying to make split-second decisions. So perhaps we could look at all that too. That's a really good point, isn't it? Talking about the backup and support someone has. And people do make mistakes. But again, what people are doing is adding up those mistakes that have taken place this year. You know, if you're in a business and your business makes money and makes profit and you employ a lot of people when the goalposts keep changing it's very hard to be in that business isn't it and it doesn't matter what the business is you know your industry my industry it doesn't matter what it is when the goalposts keep changing and I think that there's there's a feeling that that's what's going on you know you keep changing the goalposts just stop changing the goalposts you know we we don't have to agree with your rules we don't have to like your rules but if they're there and they're black and white and they're the rules then fine we have to work with them and and any other business would would accept that you know begrudgingly even but accept yeah and that that is the biggest argument against what's happened both on Sunday but also other times this season is we want consistency and there is a big distinction I have to say to make between the race director Michael Massey and the penalties that a lot of people are upset about as the season's gone on because those penalties that are handed out at the end of a race for certain infringements don't come from Michael Massey they come from the stewards and I think a lot of people are 
confusing a lot of the, the decisions from the stewards that they've been unhappy about all season and lumping Michael Massey in with that. And they are two separate things. Having said that, I also think Michael Massey has made some controversial calls. He's made some mistakes, some calls that I think could have been made differently and should have been made differently. Uh, and you're absolutely right. You know, when the goalposts keep moving, how on earth can you call that a fair sport? And that's the argument, which I completely agree with. But I think the, prob the, 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 the way to fix that is not just replace Michael Massey. It's about finding a system to make sure that the decisions that whoever the race director is can fit into certain boxes. And that's not easy because it's a complicated sport. But if we can simplify certain elements of the rule to take out a little bit of that race director's discretion, I mean, you're always going to have some things sub subjective when you come down to decision making. We have that in most sports, don't we? But we have to, so we have to give some leeway for that, that you're never going to always agree with every decision. But if we can simplify some of the rules and put a, a clearer framework into place to allow him to make those decisions a little bit easier and a bit more consistently, I think people will have to be happy with that. You know, when you watch football, there will always be a decision that you think should have gone a different way. When, you, when you're watching a more subjective sport like, I don't know, ice skating, you know, table te uh, dancing or, or diving, it's somebody judging how well you dived. That's somebody's opinion and that can affect whether you win a gold medal or not. So certain sports have a subjective element to them and Formula One is one of those that has a bit of that. Yeah, well, you look at other sports. Boxing's another great example, isn't it? The judges count on different scorecards. The amount of times, you know, the loser has said, this is a fix. Um, I think we also have to remember a few other things, though, and that is that, that Mercedes are the world champions. And it must be really hard being part of that team, knowing you're, you are the world champions, yet there's this furore around one individual, which is, yes, of course, he's the driver of the team, but they're the world champions and, and the money goes to the world champions. And so it's not like they've lo the season's lost. They've, they've had a magnificent season and they've done extremely well and they've won as a team. And I think sometimes that's forgotten a little bit. Yeah, it's been overshadowed, hasn't it? And uh, they haven't really been able to even celebrate in the right way. That's a huge achievement, winning the World Constructors' Championship. It's massive for the, the thousand or so people that are involved in that organisation. So they should be allowed their moment to really celebrate that. But it's been tainted by what's happened you know, in the Drivers' Championship. And that is a real shame because I know from being inside the team that to win any championship is an almost indescribably difficult thing to do you know it's it's the holy grail as i said it, it doesn't the championship wasn't won or lost on sunday you know it was won or lost over the course of 22 hard races this season a hard fought battle and and even long before that you know in the many months building up to the start of the season so people who watch it on television only see the tip of the iceberg which is that little bit that you see on a sunday afternoon with a tiny portion of the team you know, the two drivers in the cars and that little snippet of time that you focus in on in the two hour period that you're watching the Grand Prix, there's a massive amount more and a massive number of people that have to put a huge amount of effort and sacrifice. I touched on earlier being away from home for so much of your year. That then takes the support of family members, of husbands and wives and kids and friends and family who all have to give those individuals the support to allow them to go away and do that. And so when you get a moment like winning the championship, it's such a, a huge deal. You know, it, it justifies all of that effort and sacrifice. And to not be able to celebrate it in the right way is such a shame because you can look at Mercedes and say, well, they've been winning everything for years, so it's just another one. There will be people in that team who've only joined in the last year and this could be their first championship. That's 
the biggest thing they may ever achieve in their career. It's a huge moment and it's been tainted, which is a real shame. However, as you, as you rightly say, the season certainly wasn't a disaster for, for Mercedes or for Red Bull. They both won a championship each. And I know we can't just share these things out, but both teams and drivers were very, very worthy of, of winning either or both of those championships. So it's been an unbelievably great season with two of the best drivers in the world, two of the best teams in the world going head to head. Something we've been screaming out for as Formula One fans for years, and we finally got it this year. So Amongst all of the controversy and the dismay over what happened on Sunday, let's take a moment to appreciate what we've all been lucky enough to witness this year, which has been something we may not get, you know, in our lifetimes again to the same level. Well, when you, you absolutely bang on the money with that. What, what excites me, though, is thinking about a few other things. Obviously, we've got George Russell coming into uh, race with Lewis next year. We just saw Carlos Sainz beat Charles Leclerc, which that was really interesting because that wasn't that. Well, you know, if you'd have had a bet on that at the beginning of the season, you wouldn't have bet on that for sure. Um, so and so by seeing, you know, it's nice to see Alex Albon come back in as well. You saw the the, the, the Alpha Tauris finish the last race and have a, have a great race and. You, you see uh, Daniel getting better against Lando, but Lando's, Lando's world championship material as well, isn't he? World champion material as well. Who's going to be mega pissed off come the start of the season and want to get his own back? There's a certain Lewis Hamilton as well, so he's going to have the fire in the belly too. Do you know what? There's, there's Formula One's in, despite what happened on Sunday, Formula One's in the greatest state that it's been in in, in, my, in the history of the sport for me, certainly in my memory of it. Um, in that we have... You know, we've got new owners of the sport in recent years in Liberty Media, who I think have done a pretty decent job in trying to expand it into new areas. The Drive to Survive thing on Netflix you talked about has brought in so many new fans. Um, we have opened up this world of social media. We've got more access to, to various people, teams, drivers, radio. The sport's in a great place, you know, and there's still room for lots of growth. We haven't really tapped into the American market fully yet, and that's something they've got a big push to do over the next few years. We've got new cars in the sport next year, brand new philosophy around design, different looking cars, different aerodynamics, brand new tyres coming in with sort of um, low profile tyres on a, on a much bigger rim compared to what we have now. That's a game changer from an engineering perspective. So. We've got new drivers coming in. We've got the likes of Kimi. Let's not forget Kimi. What an amazing career he's had. He's left. It's been the end of so many eras on Sunday, but the beginning of so many more. So there's lots to be excited about. Yes, definitely. For sure, for sure. If you, if you had a chance now to go back and work in F1, okay, and they said to you, Mark, we love what you're doing, okay, write your own check, choose your own job. What would you, what would, what would you do if you could? Do you know what? This is um, this sort of feels like a cop out to the question, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't do it. And the only reason I wouldn't do it is not because I don't love it, because I, I do. I love being in that paddock, but I've done it and I've ticked the box for me and it was my dream and my dream came true. And I mean, you know, you could talk about being a team, you're running a team. I mean, I, I'm now involved in various businesses and, and from a managerial perspective, I love running people. I love running teams and building teams. I go into I go into lots of companies all around the world now talking about how to build high-performing teams um, off the back of my Formula One experience. So I'd love that opportunity to build a Formula One team. So a team principal role would be something really interesting. I love what Toto does you know, at Mercedes. The way his philosophy has built that, that organization and the success they've clearly had off the back of it is remarkable. I'd love the opportunity to do something like that. But in reality, I love what I do today, you know, and 
you know, the, you can always look and say the grass is greener somewhere else, but all the while I'm happy and enjoying what I'm doing and can see growth and, and, and enjoyment in the future, I don't want to change it. That won't last forever. And at some point, as has happened on a number of occasions through my career, I'll change track and I'll go and do something else. And um, I don't know what that'll be yet, but that's almost what's most exciting. I don't have a desire to go back into something that I've already kind of done. And there's no arrogance when I say that or big headedness. It's not about that at all. It's just that the future for me is this really exciting unknown path. I don't know which direction it's going to go. It's already gone in some weird directions. I wouldn't want to necessarily just navigate it back to, to where it all began. Your insights are phenomenal. It's great to talk to somebody who's had first-hand experience in there and has got such in-depth knowledge of the sport. Let's hope that everything comes out in the end for the best and everyone can agree eventually to shake hands uh, and decide to brush themselves down. I'm, I'm optimistic. And, uh, well, can, and I just, I, can I just say before we go, I, I think in terms of that, you know, what's happened over Sunday has caused a massive divide amongst fans, hasn't it, and amongst people watching the sport between a Lewis Hamilton set of fans and a Max Verstappen fans or Mercedes and Red Bull. Uh, the one thing I have seen is, is it turned people nasty. And we should remember, as I touched on earlier, this has just been an epic Formula One season. So if you're angry about Wappen Sunday, you're not angry with other Formula One fans. Don't take it out on other people on Twitter or anything else. You know, uh, people are allowed to have a different opinion to you that doesn't match yours. Don't get so angry about it. Be kind. Appreciate what we've what we've all been through and witnessed together because it's a moment in history. And just look, if you're a Lewis Hamilton fan, look at how Lewis responded on Sunday evening. I mean, what a class act Lewis Hamilton was in losing. As I said, a, a world title is the biggest thing you can achieve. It is the holy grail. And look at that. He did everything right on Sunday. It was in the bag until events outside of his control changed that for him. And yet he got out the car the first thing he said was congratulations to Max and to his team Red Bull. He didn't once complain about decisions that were being made that went against him. And I thought that was a real inspirational way to deal with defeat that a lot of Formula One fans could probably learn a lot from at the moment. Yeah, not only Formula One fans, other sports people as well, to be honest with you. It was, it was a great example. It would be interesting to hear what his father was saying to him at that moment. But um, uh, I'm sure it was, you know, because we don't see him often together anymore, do you? You don't see them often together. And uh, to see that, that, that was a very lovely, lovely moment. But yeah, he's definitely for sure. He came out and, and just just looked the way that we would all hope that somebody would look and behaved in that way too and uh, I've got so I've always had respect for him but so much more respect for him just for those five minutes of behavior at that time yeah agreed yeah I wonder why people do get angry with each other it's kind of like you know we've got we've got to be divided we've got to be different but the fact is it's this is look you just you just sat on your sofa eating Doritos, watching <laughs> fantastic entertainment for the yeah. whole year. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do for the next three months until it starts again. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, I get I get withdrawal symptoms when I know we haven't got a race for two weeks. I'm like, when's a head to head? When's a head to head? Me too. <laughs> it's great that people get so passionate about it. You know, it is fantastic that that's why you know people are so passionate, and that's what generates this passionate debate. You know, that's brilliant. We want to hear all of that. But just keep it kind, keep it polite, keep it respectful. You know, your, your, your grief, your beef is not with fellow Formula One fans. You can be angry at the race director. You can be angry at the way events unfolded. But, you know, we've all shared a moment in time and it went for some of us. It didn't go for other of us, depending on who you're supporting. That was always going to be the case. Only There can only be one winner. So, you know, let's just 
embrace the fact that um, you know maybe we'll come back next year and maybe it'll work out differently for you then. I can't wait. It's so exciting already. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for your time, mate. It's been great talking to you. I know you've got a number of, of, of productions that you put out on YouTube and stuff. Do you go live on YouTube every week or what is it you do? And can you share that with us? Yeah, so I have a YouTube channel, which uh, I used to produce content every day, but because of the Wheeler Dealers filming that I'm doing at the moment, I just simply haven't got time. But I have kept a, a one our live show every Monday night. So we're recording this on Tuesday morning after the Grand Prix. Last night, I did an hour long show, which was just brilliant because of course, everything that's happened on Sunday, it was a, exactly what we've just described, a, a really passionate hour of discussion. So I really, you know, because I'm a massive Formula One fan at heart, I love to do that. I love to engage with Formula One fans and that's a great way for me to do it. Uh, I've also got a podcast where I try and share some of these um, these learnings that I've had from, from years inside the sort of inner sanctum of the sport. And as I talked about earlier, trying to learn how to build high-performing teams, how to handle pressure. And I've got a podcast that I started this year, which will be picking up again in the new year, where I really try and pass on those messages from elite sport that people can take into their everyday and, and learn how to be better parents or better team members in the office. And, and, you know, those kind of messages that can translate into every day. So that's a real passion of mine too. So I love what I do. I love being able to share this stuff with people because ultimately I'm just a fan of the sport like everyone else. What's the podcast called? Pit Lane Life Lessons. Pit Lane Life Lessons. Okay, listen up, guys, go and subscribe to that because that'd be um, something worth it and following. And also the YouTube channel is, is your name, Mark Priestley? Yeah, Mark Priestley or F1 Elvis. All my socials are F1 Elvis. You'll find it that way too. Um, let's just touch on that quickly because people will be like, why? Um, obviously, I know. <laughs> I, obviously, I know. And you've been asked a million times. And I know it's... Well, the the Elvis. Answer, you know, this, I really am disappointed that there's not a more exotic and glamorous story behind it. <laughs> I'm often tempted just to make one up because I often feel like it should be better than it is. But yeah, when I was about 10 years old, some bright spark at school realised that my surname of Priestley sounds a tiny bit like Presley. And so the Elvis nickname was born and it's just stuck ever since. And now, you know, half the F1 pit lane, I'm sure, don't even know my actual name's Mark because everyone, even my wife, only ever calls me Elvis. So that's, <laughs> there you go, it's but, stuck. Did, on, your, on your overalls, did you have Elvis on your overalls? Yeah, I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. man. <laughs> See, I didn't know when I first met you. I just thought you were called Elvis. Yeah. And I'm like, he's a bit weird, yeah. isn't he? Called Elvis. I thought, shaking Stevens, <laughs> Elvis. I'm like, blimey, Elvis. <laughs> can't sing or dance mate <laughs> <laughs> but you can do a lot of stuff fantastically thank you so much for coming to join us on the show today and also for what the words you gave me before about you listening to my podcast and enjoying the episodes that I make it really meant a lot to me that you take the time to listen to it or watch it and um, get some well, benefit from it too yeah it's true mate uh, you, the, the, the guests you've had on here have been remarkable some brilliant stories from so many different areas and industries and I said to you the reason I find it so great is I started listening because I know you but I've continued listening because the guests have been so fantastic and your conversations teach everybody so much about worlds that I don't, I don't think I'd have ever gone on to a podcast that was around some of the subjects specifically that you've covered but because I've stumbled across it through you, I'm now much you know, richer for it. So I said to you, the one that really stood out for me was the Evelyn Glennie episode. What a, what a fascinating story that lady has and, and what an inspiration she is. Uh, just a remarkable conversation, that one. Yeah, definitely, for sure. There's just so many. Yeah, absolutely. But thank you so much for your kind words. Ladies and gentlemen, the amazing Mark Priestley. <laughs> Thank you. 
If you're listening to this on iTunes, please give me a five-star rating, please. It will make such a difference. And if you're listening to this on any other podcast app, then please leave us some love. Give us a like. Give us a follow. Whatever you can do. The more that you do that, the more that other people get to benefit from this content too. I will see you on the next episode. So it's always important to mention people that you partner with and partners for the podcast are Najahi Events and Najahi Tribe. Now, Najahi sounds like an unusual word, and it is, but it's Arabic for my success. And Najahi have brought some of the world-leading public speakers, motivational speakers, inspirational leaders across to Dubai over the course of the years, and Abu Dhabi, mind you. And Najahi brought, I don't know, people like Tony Robbins, ever heard of him? Okay, Nick Vujicic, no arms, no legs, no worries. Lisa Nichols, Prince EA, Jay Shetty, uh, Alicia Keys, and people like this. And they bring them in and they run events. And from those events, we go and we learn from these incredible people. On top of that, they launched the Najahi Tribe recently, where they have a collective of the world's greatest trainers, that literally you can join, become a member of, take advantage of a training from all of these different people, like real experts in their field. I've got a sneaky suspicion I might be one of them as well. But anyway, (laughs) hopefully you will go and check them out for me because you enjoy these episodes of the podcast. And remember, it's always team effort and I can't do it without the support of these people. So go check out Najahi Events, N-A-J-A-H-I events.com. I'll see you soon.